0: Most children are not gonna require hospitalization. That may give us a little breath of, okay, so then let's really think about, do I really need to consider this vaccine?
1: On today's podcast, we're talking with Dr. Alisa Song, who's an integrative, holistic, and functional medicine pediatrician on the topic of COVID-19 vaccines for kids parents are asking all around the world, should my child, should my kid get the COVID-19 vaccine? It's a nuanced conversation with a lot of layers, and that's why we have Dr. Song on the podcast to talk all about it. Hi, everyone. I know I'm not the only one who finds sleep a little tougher in the summer. Most people don't realize that temperature has a huge impact on how well we all sleep. One study, get this, found that of 765,000 people, It found that most people have abnormal sleeping patterns during the hotter summer months because it's difficult to keep an optimal temperature in their bedroom. And the other studies showed that we sleep deeper at cooler temperatures. While I try to keep a comfortable sleep environment all year long, Now that summer's here, I'm extra mindful about keeping it cool. This goes way beyond cranking up the AC. It's important to keep your bed and body from overheating to truly optimize your sleep. I tried some of the bamboo sheets from Cozy Earth, which are natural temperature regulating, and I love how cool and comfortable they keep my bed. Most people have no clue that cotton is not the ideal option for temperature regulation. It was actually used as insulation back in the early 1900s and has been used for bedding even longer. It became a commonplace even though there are much better alternatives like bamboo. With bamboo sheets from Cozy Earth, my bed stays just the right temperature, even when it's hot here in LA or wherever it is that you live. Plus, they use a special weave that makes them softer than any other brands I've tried. I also love that I can trust Cozy Earth because their entire line is free from harmful chemicals that are found in most traditional beddings. Right now, Cozy Earth is offering my audience 40% off site-wide. This is the best discount they offer anywhere. Just head over to CozyEarth.com and use the discount code DREW, spelled differently, D-H-R-U, 40, Drew 40. That's Cozy, C-O-Z-Y, Earth, E A R T H dot com, and use the code D H R U 40. I definitely recommend checking out their super comfortable bamboo sheets so you can get better sleep today. Hi, everyone. It's true. There's a reason I've talked to so many experts on my podcast about magnesium. This super mineral is needed for over 400 enzymatic reactions in your body. In fact, every single cell contains it and needs it to function. Magnesium is essential for stress management And restful sleep because of its influence on neurotransmitters. It supports insulin sensitivity and fights the risk of type 2 diabetes. And magnesium also reduces C reactive protein and many other markers of inflammation, among so many other crucial functions. I personally started taking magnesium to help with my sleep, especially when I travel, which we're all starting to do again. And it's been a game changer. But I don't just take any old magnesium i take bio optimizers magnesium breakthrough it contains seven yes seven different forms of magnesium which all have different functions in the body i haven't found anything else like it on the market that's why i hand it to all my friends like candy (laughs) bio optimizers is great because all their products are soy free gluten free lactose free non-gmo free of chemicals and fillers and made with all natural ingredients. Right now, BioOptimizes is offering my community a few special bundles. Just head over to magbreakthrough.com backslash Drew, spelled differently, D-H-R-U, with the code Drew10, D-H-R-U-10. So that's magbreakthrough, M-A-G-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com Backslash D H R U with the code Drew10. If you missed any of that, it's in the show notes. Now back to today's episode. Welcome to the Drew Peroet Podcast. Each week we explore the inner workings of the brain and the body with one of the brightest minds in wellness, medicine, and mindset. Today's guest is Dr. Alisa Song. Dr. Song is an integrative pediatrician, pediatric, functional medicine expert, and mama. In her integrative practice, Whole Family Wellness, she's helped thousands of kids get to the root cause of their health concerns and help their parents understand how to help their children thrive, body, mind, and spirit, by integrating conventional pediatrics with functional medicine, homeopathy, acupuncture, herbal medicine, and essential oils. Dr. Song has taught around the world on integrative pediatric topics, for multiple podcasts, summits, nonprofits, and associations. Dr. Song is also the founder of Healthy Kids, Happy Kids, an online holistic pediatric resource to help practitioners and parents bridge the gap between conventional and integrative pediatrics with evidence-based pediatric-backed approach. Now, Dr. Song recently wrote an article titled, Should Kids Get a COVID-19 Vaccine? As you can imagine, the topic of vaccines, both for parents and children, can be very polarizing. That's why we invited Dr. Song on the podcast to specifically talk about the nuances around young teens and eventually kids potentially getting the vaccine and to dive into the research showing cause for concerns and questions that might be there. Now, before we jump into today's episode, I want to remind you that if you think vaccines are all bad... Or if you think that vaccines are all good, carte blanche statement one way or another, this conversation may not be for you. This conversation is for open minded individuals who want to dig into the nuances and look at the data. And Dr. Song will walk us through that data here today. Let's jump into today's interview with Dr. Elisa Song on the topic of COVID 19, kids, and vaccines. Dr. Song, welcome back on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here on this important topic that a lot of parents and people just in general are very interested in learning more about, which is all about COVID-19 vaccines and kids and the larger sort of conversations around that. So it's a pleasure to have you back on the podcast.
0: Thank you, Ju. It's my honor to be here.
1: I want to read off, you wrote this beautiful article that we have. It's the first link in the show notes. We'll link to it so everybody can go see all the references that you have inside of there. There'll be some additional information you might present today and we'll include those as additional references, but I want to start off by reading this beautiful opening that you put together. Um, And I'll I'll paraphrase it, so I won't go through the whole thing. You said, some parents had already decided that when they were going to be the first in line to get the COVID-19 vaccine, as soon as the emergency use authorization was granted for the FDA for use in 12 to 15-year-olds on May 2021, other parents had already decided that there was no way that they would ever get the COVID-19 vaccine for their kids even if the emergency use authorization was granted. This article, and I would extend this to this conversation, this conversation is not for either of those parents he wrote. He said, this article is for those parents who have questions. As a parent who's had kids who've had COVID and a pediatrician who's had so many questions from their community, and just as a health teacher and advocate themselves who's interested, what made you want to dive into this topic of COVID-19, kids, and vaccines?
0: Well, Drew, of course, you know, everyone knows how controversial a topic this is. And, And, you know, it's something that I felt like I could not, not respond to, not help support parents through, you know, one of the most difficult decisions we have moving forward in this pandemic the the answers are not easy and i think for many parents who really looked at the vaccine decision for themselves and looked at the risk benefit analysis many parents chose to receive the vaccine and you know i wrote uh, an article on that and i actually taught a long masterclass on that to help support parents through that decision But the risk-benefit analysis for children is very different. And it's something that we really want to make sure that we don't go into recklessly that we have solid evidence to back our decisions as parents and as practitioners and especially as pediatricians, you know, recommending the vaccines to their patients. So I really want to bring this information out to the public. Again, as you said, it's not an either or, and I 100% believe that the vaccine decision needs to be made by parents weighing their own family's risks and benefits, weighing their own child's risks and benefits, and really considering the larger, um, you know, public health needs, whether or not children actually need to get a vaccine for public health, and really looking ethically at our global pandemic and where we are now. There's so many different layers to this conversation. But really, I was thrust into (laughs) COVID-19. I mean, we all kind of, we all were, right, unexpectedly. Um, But in February of 2020, I sat down and we were hearing these reports out of China, right, about this this virus. It wasn't even called COVID-19 yet. Uh, we called it it was called SARS-CoV-2. And so I wrote this article: Coronavirus, what a pediatrician wants you to know. Uh, I believe I published it on February 28 because I was afraid, right? When I have fear, my instinct is to go into the science, look at all the data we have. And I wrote this article really to look at what do we know about SARS-CoV-1 and MERS? And what do we know from a functional medicine perspective to help us really enter into what wasn't even called a global pandemic yet, but enter into this scary realm with a little more knowledge on how we can build our own immune resilience. And that's exactly what we spoke about on our first interview. Um, Since then, so that was the end of February. And then, I mean, life happens for a reason. I believe that things happen to us, you know, for, (laughs) for, for a reason. And my family contracted COVID back in early March before we even knew, I couldn't even test my kids, right? I couldn't even test myself. I was waiting, waiting, waiting for Quest to send me the swabs. (laughs) We were just in a different place. And my son was hospitalized, in fact, even before we knew it was COVID. And he was hospitalized with all the signs of heading into what we now call multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children. And so I did not want any parent to ever, ever have that fear of the unknown. Uh, And so it's really, since then... That I've really dedicated a lot of this past year and a half into educating myself and educating parents so that we can really go through this pandemic together, right? walk through it together with more calm, with more confidence, and walk through it together using facts and science and not fear, because there's just been way too much fear throughout this pandemic.
1: Yeah, it's so true. And on the topic of fear and, and facts and science, science is not, it's a discussion, as many prominent people have shared because the science is continuing to evolve. And it's important that people like yourself, because you're trained in this area, and other individuals that are speaking up, that it's all part of the discussion. Where it becomes very challenging is when we use consensus, which happens has happened a lot during uh, the pandemic um, and COVID-19, everything we've been dealing with, when we say consensus has put an end to people needing to have a discussion about it. And then anybody who does have a discussion is considered an outlier or somebody that, um, is, uh, on the fringes or a conspiracy theorist. So I actually applaud all the parents who are watching this right now and watch more of the conversations that are out there. Follow up on some of the references and the resources that you'll present over here and do your own digging because, you know, I think a great place to start is that you brought up, and while we were chit-chatting before we started recording, you brought up a recent article that uh, you were digging into about confirmation bias and how that mm-hmm. might be navigating some of the recommendations that are in the space. I'd love to, for you to chat about it a little bit because I think it's so important because even sometimes the people that we look up to and trust, naturally, we all are victims of our own confirmation bias. So sometimes you might just hear you know, a um, uh, an expert that's out there that would be repeating the official doctrine that they have been given, either pro pro or against a particular topic. So I'd love to start there before we dive into this discussion.
0: Yeah, that's that's um, it's so important to recognize that our brain we're just wired to look for things that confirm our beliefs. It's just the way that our brain is wired. <laughs> and in a way, um, it's actually initially um, was really a safety signal, right? If something's dangerous, right, the fire's hot. We want to remember that. And every time we touch something hot, remember, oh, that's hot. And it, it confirms that, you know, this is going to be hot. But we have to be careful because when it comes to scientific data, we need to understand that there are, I mean, really and truly so much data coming out every day, not just on COVID, but on so many different issues. And so we want to be careful that we're not just picking and choosing the articles, not just picking and choosing the headlines, not just following, you know, the 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 doctors or the organizations that really confirm what we really want to believe. Right? Many parents want to believe that that vaccines are going to be are safe and effective. Uh, by the same token, many parents want to believe that no vaccine is safe and effective. And so so you know, we really we need to be careful about you know what we're reading, how we're interpreting it, and and really use our own critical thinking. You know, just like we would tell our children, and I tell this to parents and kids all the time in my office. You know, we never just want to believe something because our friend told us so. <laughs> you know, we want to make up our own mind and use your critical thinking. And as parents, we can model that right now because there's probably some truth to a lot of things that you're reading even things that don't conform to what you had believed prior. And it's not just parents that make this mistake. Scientists and researchers do this all the time. And so, you know, as a physician in medical school, I was trained to look at a study and know, is this a good study? Are these conclusions statistically relevant? Also to look at who are the authors? You know, what is their background? What are the potential biases? But not most people aren't really used to reading papers in that way. And some of those papers are really dense. And so uh, what I try to do is distill the the heavy, do the heavy lifting for you, kind of distill all that data. Right. Um, but, you know, when I, when we look at this article that was just released this week, as you and I, you talking uh, on confirmation bias, these are very conventional doctors who are saying, look, you know, we need to think about how, how the CDC is really pushing forward with our COVID-19 Vaccine recommendations, whether it's towards pregnant women or to children or men, you know, and and their sperm not being affected, we need to look at the data and see for ourselves how accurate is this data, and not just how accurate, but how mm, broad is this data that we can then apply it to the general population and to those specific populations of concern. Um, you know, we were talking about, you know, really in in the um, In the study looking at pregnant women um, and COVID-19 vaccines. um, Interestingly, um, many, many countries around the world are not yet recommending the COVID-19 vaccine in pregnant women um, or are recommending exercising more caution than we are in the CDC. We really need more data. I mean, all of this just boils down to we have limited data right now. And with the data we have, it does look like Probably the vaccines are going to be safe in pregnant women, and that their babies are going to be have not have any worse outcomes uh, if women get the vaccine during pregnancy. But we but none of those studies followed those babies out. Um, so I'm not saying that it's. A good or a bad idea. What I'm saying is, we need more science before we make those blanket recommendations. And this is something that these very conventional doctors in this Medscape article point out. You know, even thinking about right now, what's on a lot of parents' minds is back to school and what does the Delta variant mean for children going back to school? Um, We need to step back and say, well, look, let's look at what the information we have. Yes, we know it's more transmissible. Yes, we know that, you know, you are more likely to contract uh, uh, the Delta variant, um, you know, even if you're out doors, but that doesn't necessarily translate into more severe disease, hospitalizations, or deaths. So, take a breath, right? This is where we always have to just kind of stop when we feel our fear and our anxiety mounting. And, you know, in this conversation around vaccines, there's probably not a single more emotional issue for parents right? What are the most emotional issues that we have that we try not to talk with about our families and friends? It's politics, religion, and vaccines, right? <laughs> I mean, those, those three are kind of like, you know, challenging to, to uh, discuss. So when we feel our emotions rising, our anxiety rising, fear levels rising, we want to acknowledge that. You know, we definitely want to acknowledge, okay, I'm worried about this. I'm afraid of this. I've seen this data. What does this mean? Acknowledge that and then take a moment to breathe, and then look at the data and think about what this means for your own child, right? And that's, that's where we really want to just, um, you know, again, step back, use our critical thinking brain and make decisions with, with our thinking rational brain and not with our emotional brain.
1: Totally. And I think that a beautiful part about that is that we all get fearful. We all have biases that are there. And if we can just own it and step into it, it's like, great, we're a human being, anybody who has seen my show and seen different episodes knows that I have a natural bias towards holistic approach to interventions. And the idea behind that is that no system in the body is isolated on its own. Everything is connected to each other. And that comes out of my world and association of knowing incredible functional medicine doctors like yourself. And so I'm naturally biased towards a systems-based approach thinking for diseases and interventions and other components that are there. And I own that, right? I own that aspect. And I also try to keep an open mind through that process of anything that might contradict that or push against it, because there's a lot of really innovative and interesting therapies and modalities that come that we may not know the mechanism of action of how they integrate with the whole system, or they might be biohacking drugs that you know friends are really into. And and it's just to keep an open mind that you never really know what is going to be coming into the mix. But I think a great place to start and sort of set the seed for the foundation of the article that you wrote in this conversation is that um, let's talk about emergency authorization, emergency use authorization. So the emergency use authorization was the primary vehicle. You know, normally vaccine trials take a lot longer than this last round did for, Uh, adults, and that's the primary vaccines that are out there, Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson, and other vaccines in other countries. But that's the primary vehicle of getting this out to the population, the market right now, based on how significant of a risk COVID-19 was for the general population. Then what ended up happening, if I can understand correctly, is that for kids age 12, is it 12 and above? Was it 12 to 16?
0: The, well, the Pfizer trial were, was in 12 to 15-year-olds because Pfizer had been authorized for 16 and up.
1: 16 and up. Got it. So through through that, there was also the emergency. So Pfizer was extended the ex- extension of emergency use authorization for vaccine for kids 12 to, to 15. So let's talk about that first. So what is emergency use authorization and what was found in that initial um, you know, trial that's important for people to understand? And why are there some questions around the use of emergency use authorization as the vehicle for getting ki- uh, kids vaccinations?
0: Yeah. So, you know, one thing that we know, well, I'll, I'll read to you really what emergency use authorization means, right? Please, because please. What, what, what people, many people understand by this point is that the, all of the current COVID-19 vaccines are not FDA approved. They are authorized for emergency use. And so the FDA approval process, which then would deem, you know, the, would approve what's called a biologics license uh, for, that, for that vaccine, requires what the FDA calls substantial clinical evidence that the drug is safe and effective for its intended use and can be made according to federal quality standards. But in certain emergency situations, like a global pandemic, the FDA can grant what's called emergency use authorization without waiting for all the evidence needed for biologics license approval, full FDA approval. Uh, And the FDA must determine that the known and potential benefits outweigh the known and potential risks of the vaccine. So when we look at how the trials were were run through, um, there were substantial numbers of, of uh, patients, participants in the trials f- in the adult population. Um, when we look at the trials in the pediatric population, that's not necessarily the case. And I want to give you the exact numbers from the Pfizer data. Okay, so I'm going to look for that in just a second. Um, sure. But one thing that that we know uh, with in terms of thinking about emergencies, sure. At this point now, we know who is more at risk for death and dying and hospitalizations, right? From from COVID nineteen, we know that those are the elderly. You know, those sixty five and up. Um, we know that uh, that from a functional medicine standpoint, this is not surprising. But we know that those who have metabolic syndrome, obesity, chronic heart disease, chronic lung disease, chronic kidney disease, all of those chronic illnesses that in functional medicine, we are trying to get to the root cause of to reverse and heal. And as a pediatrician, a functional medicine pediatrician, my mission is to prevent those in the first place in children. But we know where where those risk points are. For children, there has been some thought and some consideration as to really do these does COVID nineteen in children really um, uh, create an emergency that um, you know would would warrant the the approval of an emergency use authorization vaccine? A little bit of a different risk factor, right? A little bit of a different risk-benefit analysis in children. And this is key. The FDA must determine that the known and potential benefits outweigh the known and potential risks of the vaccine, not just globally, but in this case for children, for 12 to 15-year olds. Also, now as the studies are moving down to younger and younger kids, for children six months to 11 years. And that risk-benefit analysis is not entirely clear just yet. We know that, you know, with the Pfizer vaccine, and and not just Pfizer, the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer and Moderna, that um, several countries have acknowledged a link at this point with myocarditis post-vaccine, typically after dose two. Um, That's a very small risk, but we also, and we also know that there's a very small risk of myocarditis after the infection, right? I mean, that's, That's been seen. There was a study of Big Ten collegiate athletes, right? These top athletes after COVID-19. And even months later had evidence of myocarditis, um, you know, on on examination and on further study, more, you know, radiologic studies. So we need to compare, well, which risk is higher? You know, which risk are we more willing to tolerate? Um, So the Pfizer trial uh, that enrolled 12 to 15-year-olds, enrolled a total of 2,260 children. Um, About 1,100 received the vaccine. About 1,100 received the placebo. And 660 of those vaccinated children were followed for two months after their second dose. Those children, 12 to 15-year-olds, received the same 0.3-milliliter dose as adults. So in each 0.3 milliliters of the Pfizer vaccine, there is 30 micrograms of mRNA. And so the dosage was the same, and it was a two-dose regimen three weeks apart. Now, the Pfizer trials reported 100% efficacy. What does that mean? They said that there were no symptomatic COVID-19 cases in the vaccine group, whereas there were 18 cases in the placebo group. However, the trial results were not actually looking at reduction in hospitalization or deaths in children to report efficacy. The reason being is we can go into the numbers for children, but the rates of hospitalization and death in children are so exceedingly low and rare that in order to prove that the vaccines actually reduced hospitalization and death in children, they would have had to enroll an unrealistically high number of children. So what? Pfizer is looking at, and what the FDA is, is um, basing their authorization on, is what's called immunobridging. So what that means is they're looking to see, is there a non-inferior response in children? Meaning, do 12 to 15-year-olds mount at least as much of an antibody response as the 16 to 25-year-old age group? So they compared it to the next age group up. What was found was that children mounted at least a 1.76 times higher antibody response than the 16 to 25-year-olds. So, you know, on first glance, you I think, wow, that's great, right? Higher antibody response, more protection. That means it's going to be more effective. But we know from an immunologic and a functional medicine standpoint that more is not always better, right? We don't necessarily want more antibodies. We want effective antibody response. Yeah, you don't and want we, your immune
1: system to be completely ramped up, and you don't want it to be completely low. You want it to be operating right there in the middle, appropriate, 100%. appropriate for the situation.
0: Yeah, and that's where we see, you know, that... Theoretically, you know, from an immunologic standpoint and from a functional medicine standpoint, a stronger, higher immune response might then lead, as you said, Drew, to a more dysregulated immune reaction, more inflammation, and then possibly more side effects. And that is what we saw. You know, the side effects immediately that were noted in the 12 to 15-year-old age range were similar, those immediate side effects, fever, fatigue, you know, headaches, things like that, Um, but they were noted at a higher rate in the 12 to 15-year-olds than in the 16 to 25-year-old age group. Um, we also know from the myocarditis analysis you know, in, in vaccine recipients that young males especially, but also some females under 30 are more at risk for myocarditis. Well, we don't know just yet, because a vaccine for 12 to 15-year-olds was really just authorized in mid-May, and we are seeing that, you know, millions of doses have already been given out, and we are noting an increase in reports of myocarditis post-vaccine myocarditis and pericarditis in the 12 to 15-year-old age range. Um, We need to now look at, is that rate higher in the 12 to 15-year-old age range than in the 60 to 25-year-old age group, Um, which theoretically, possibly. That being said, we also want to step back and note that overall, you know, these these reports make the headlines, but overall, the numbers of children who are developing myocarditis and pericarditis post-vaccine, it it is higher than the baseline that, that we would expect from the general population, but still appears, at least according to the CDC data that they presented at their meeting on June 23rd, still appears to possibly be lower in the 12 to 17-year-old age range than what we might expect um, from COVID-19. But this data is not, we need to continue to analyze this data. Very, very important. You know, this is where, you know, for parents to make that informed decision, we need to look at weighing the risks of post-vaccine adverse events with post-COVID infection serious adverse events. We know, theoretically, and again, from an immunologic standpoint, anything that could happen after infection could theoretically happen after vaccination. So we know myocarditis can happen after infection. We also know that children and adults can mount autoimmune antibodies, and MISC, multisystem inflammatory syndrome in children, is likely an autoimmune reactive event. In addition to a, a leaky gut event. Um, and so we know that MISC can happen after infection. Could it possibly happen after vaccination? That is something that is record, the FDA is looking at as a potential concern that needs to be monitored. What about long haul after vaccination? We're not really seeing that in adults, um, but we know that children can get long haul like adults, rarely, but they can. So we also need to monitor long haul after vaccination we need to monitor you know autoimmune disease in the long run which we won't know for years unfortunately because you can have autoimmune antibodies in your system sometimes for decades you know in terms of you know let's say type 1 diabetes or let's say hashimoto's right your antithyroglobulin and antithyroperoxase antibodies you can have those antibodies for years decades before you actually develop clinical signs and lab signs of hypothyroidism. But that's a red flag, right? When I see those autoantibodies, I say, oh my gosh, let's step back. Why is this child developing these autoimmune antibodies? Let's take a look at the gut and the immune system and the brain and all the lifestyle factors that we can really, um, really address to uh, reverse that autoimmune reactivity in that child.
1: And, and, you know, you were mentioning, you know, weighing the, the risks as all interventions, everything, has risks that are there, not just vaccines, any kind of intervention that would be brought in. And then those have to be seen within the context, as you referenced earlier, within the general sort of playing field of what kids kids are exposed against. And when it comes to COVID, I have some numbers that I pulled up here from a CDC, uh, from the CDC. And when people are remembering about how likely it is that kids are going to die from COVID. So, just it's important to keep into mind these numbers in the context. for kids 5 to 14 years old, which the vaccines are not yet authorized for that uh, group, but it's just important to, to note that um, that there, uh, COVID is amongst 100,000 deaths amongst children, COVID would be 0. 0.2 right under flu and pneumonia, which is 0.3, and above that would be drowning, which would be 0.5, cardiovascular disease, which is 0.6, and suffocation, COVID would be in alignment with suffocation, it'd be 0.2. So I think it's important to understand, you know, the larger context around, I think, some of the questions that you brought up in your article and other individuals that you referenced, you know, very mainstream public health uh, experts and medical doctors like Vinay Prasad, the first thing that they're asking is that how severe is COVID for kids in the first place? And would the emergency use authorization, does it, does it stand to give emergency youth authorization when first of all, COVID is not as extreme for kids in the, the first place? I think that's an important thing to take mm-hmm. into uh, context
0: now you know i i do want to point out though that you know many people will say well covid is you know um it's less serious than the flu in kids and you know i that's a little bit of a we can't really compare it's not apples to apples necessarily and you know it is true you know when the cdc data looking at kids in that first um uh well and even you know in Hong Kong, in different countries, looking at children, you know, with COVID-19, who are actually diagnosed with COVID-19, the vast majority actually seem to have mild or asymptomatic disease, right? That is true. One study I'm looking at, you know, from Hong Kong, um, 99% had asymptomatic or mild disease. So does that constitute... You know, an emergency. Should parents think about that as a risk for their children in terms of getting the vaccine? The answer is not so simple because I have parents, um, families where there is a really vulnerable, um, you know, at-risk individual in that family, and so perhaps then the parents are weighing that. You know, a a younger child who really does have a lot of comorbidities, um, you know, maybe chronic diseases that put them at risk, and so they're thinking, we we want to make sure that we're bringing COVID home at a lower Rate, you know, lower risk, uh, so that we can protect some members of our family. Um, there are, you know, this really does have to be an individualized decision, but it is true. I mean, most children are going to have mild or asymptomatic disease. Most children are not going to require hospitalization. Most children are not going to go on to develop MISC. Now, when we, and most children are not going to die from COVID 19. So that may give us a little breath of, okay. So then let's really think about, do I really need to consider this vaccine? Um, on the other hand, you know, there are some kids who are getting hospitalized. There are some kids who are getting MISC. There your, are some your kids, kids were who are the, dying.
1: Your, your son was in the hospital.
0: My son was in the hospital. But even despite that, right, that was back in March of 2020. Even despite that, you know, this, this is the fear that a lot of the, um, you know, policy recommendations are are holding on to, you know, for parents. Well, kids can get hospitalized, kids can die, kids can get MIS-C. I just want to put that into context, too, for parents that yes, that, yes, absolutely, that can happen, right? But it's really, really rare, really, really rare. Um, can kids get long COVID? Yes. And, in, and that is something that we need to look at. Again, really rare, but we do need to really think about, um, you know, how do we um, how do we follow and track these kids? Because in my mind, you know, Drew, is, as you're noting, I'm sure, you know, in the in the other adult functional medicine doctors that you're speaking with, long COVID is is probably going to be our next public health crisis right, and and needs to be addressed. And if if children will get long COVID, that is going to be a consideration. Um, You know, stepping back, though, you know, I always think, well, let's put this into the larger context of what are we doing for our children in the United States? How are we preserving their health? How are we helping them thrive? And when you look at the leading causes of death, even during the pandemic, and before the pandemic, the number Two top two one and two causes of death by far, by far um even during the pandemic is injury, accidental injury, and suicide right I mean we are are in this you know we've been in this epidemic of mental health crisis for our children um for decades now, and you know even before the pandemic when you look at the rates of dying from let's say the flu um you know. 15 to 19-year-olds, 27 times more likely to die by suicide than the flu. Um, 10 to 14-year-olds, 13, over 13 times more likely to die by suicide from the flu. And during the pandemic, children were actually more likely to die from lower respiratory tract infections and flu than COVID-19. So we have this even bigger differential. So I just, you know, we need to really hopefully take this in the broader context of let's, yes, let's think about COVID-19 in children, but let's think about how are we going to keep our kids healthy, right, during the pandemic, but also post-pandemic? You know, how are we going to come out of this, right? And, and you know, it, it may be the case that for children, um, a COVID-19 vaccine doesn't make sense for many children, given that we don't know the long-term risks, of the vaccine, and given that we, you know, that the short-term risks of infection and possibly the long-term risk of infection are lower. Again, we need more information and data on that. We're weighing both sides. And I say at the end of my paper, if anyone tells you that that the vaccines are 100% safe and effective um, and don't cause any long-term serious adverse events, Maybe they're right, but they definitely could be wrong, right? On Maybe the other they're hand, guessing
1: right, but they're not basing that on data that's out exactly, there because it hasn't exactly. been studied yet.
0: And then on the flip side, though, for those who tell you that these vaccines are completely ineffective and dangerous and will only lead to long-term serious adverse events, I mean, they could be right, but also they could be wrong. And they're not basing that on data either, right? Because we have enough data. I would say, worldwide, that these vaccines are contributing to lowering rates of COVID-19 in adults, lowered rates of hospitalizations, lowered rates of deaths. Even with the Delta variant in the UK, um, as they're seeing more, more cases of Delta, they're seeing lower cases of hospitalizations. So does that mean that the vaccines are maybe not reducing the risk necessary of contracting the Delta variant, but lowering the risk of hospitalization? I think that would be great, right? Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, you know, really for when we're looking at, um, um, you know, moving forward with this discussion with children, like you said, we just, we need a lot more data. Um, and, and this is where, you know, for parents who are listening right now, I wish I could give you the answers. I wish I could say yes or no 100%, um, but that wouldn't be good science. And I would not be a good pediatrician if I did that. Would yeah, I, that's would not I the tend- goal. That's Yes, not the goal, the goal of this is to really um, have you think about these different factors, do the research yourself, and and well, read you know the research that you can. You know, I, I'm I'm going to keep presenting all the data that I find and really try to tease out the information for parents so you can make an informed decision for your child, no matter what. And also, no matter what, you know, going back to school this fall, there's still going to be COVID. But there's going to be flu. There might be stomach bugs or it might be cold. I'm already seeing a bunch of colds. My ch- my kids both had a cold, a really bad cold last every, week. Every friend right? I have,
1: their kid right now has a cold because yeah. the kids are starting to hang out again. You know, it's, it's all over the place.
0: Yes. And- Regardless, right, most of our kids aren't going to be eligible for vaccines by the time they go back to school in fall. Um, And many parents are waiting and watching and seeing. And if you've been following me, a lot of parents are actually waiting to see maybe perhaps this Novavax vaccine might be a better candidate for children than the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. but the fact remains, we need to focus on how do we build our children's immune resilience no matter what, right? Get them resilient so that whatever they're, they're facing, you know, whether it's this, the SARS CoV 2 or any other infection, that they can get sick. Maybe they get really sick, but they bounce back 100%. Right? I mean, knock on wood, you know, Bodie, who, you know, got very sick with COVID 19, he has zero residual effects that I can see. Um, But I used all of the functional medicine tools that I had been researching um, to to get them there. And I use all of these functional medicine tools to help support parents and children um, when they do get vaccines, if they do choose to get vaccines, so that we really reduce that risk of tipping over into that hyper-inflammatory response that we don't want to see. So there are ways to mitigate that for sure.
1: So one question for you, Um, you know, you mentioned earlier, and people saw this in the Publication and the news reports about it—that Pfizer had noted that their vaccine was 100% effective in those in those group of kids. Right now, from my understanding, and I might, I might have this incorrect, but I was listening to an interview of a um, public health official who was describing sort of the design of that study. And <clears throat> one of the things you know, they have—they're—they're they're not injecting kids nor adults with covid you know virus to see they're sort of putting them out there in the population right they're putting them in the, up there in the population to see who gets covid naturally who doesn't get covid naturally and i don't remember the exact date range of when the trial was conducted but one of the questions that was there is just naturally because of starting to be adult vaccination all the precautions that people are taking mm. is it and then kids just natural less likelihood of being infected from the vaccine. Um, first of all, everybody agrees that no anything can be a hundred percent, you know, in any category. It's just, you know, that's, it's never going to be the case. And we'd be setting up vaccines for failures if we would say that something, any intervention is hundred percent effective. But is it also that part of the challenge with the trial is that um, we're sort of putting kids out there in the population and just seeing who gets COVID naturally amongst themselves. And at that point in time, when the trial was conducted, there's just less COVID or less exposure to COVID in the first place. Is that a consideration or did I miss something with that?
0: You know, it's interesting because the trials were done, you know, uh, earlier this year, you know, the authorization was granted May 13th, I believe was the date. Um, So the trials were still ongoing, you know, um, when, it's interesting, at that time in April, there were reports, headlines, children are making up a higher percentage of new COVID cases, right. which was true. At one point in April, children made up a little over 24% of all new weekly COVID cases. So then, you know, of course, you read the headline as a parent, you're like, oh my gosh, wow, kids are getting sicker, more kids. But then when you looked at the, the data, it is true at that time you know, and I, and very likely because of the adult vaccination rollout, that adult numbers, the total number of weekly cases was going down. And by that same token, because children were, were not yet, you know, eligible for any vaccines, we saw this reduction in adult uh, infections. But we saw actually fewer, you know, Pediatric infections, um, but a higher percentage, if that makes sense, right? So that number was a little bit misleading. But ever since uh, the, the end of April, middle of May, those numbers, the percentage of children actually making up new infections weekly, um, relative to all COVID nineteen infections per week, has continued to drop, drop, drop. So we are now at a very low rate of new pediatric infections, and this is despite you know the pediatric vaccine not being rolled out to any any child under twelve years of age. So that points to you know what role do kids really play in herd immunity? I mean, are children really needed for herd immunity? Um, you know, the the question has is still outstanding. You know, from a research perspective, you know how. Transmissible and infectious are kids, right? Um, you know, there are studies, many studies at this point now showing that children seem to have lower viral loads. Um, children seem to be less able to transmit infection to others, especially if you're under 10, right? Over 10, perhaps that rate reaches as close to adults, but we still need to know because if children really are not, you know, are lower risk for serious infection and also lower risk for transmitting to vulnerable populations, right, and to those who are at risk around us, um, we don't necessarily, quote, need them for herd immunity. Um, You know, we also know that in Israel and in the States, you know, once the vaccines were really rolled out to adults, that that... Actually translated into a drop overall in COVID nineteen cases, even for children in Israel. You know, they they rolled out the Pfizer vaccine in mid December and really was one of the first countries to have that rapid um, rollout to uh, their population. And since January, their pediatric cases have have plummeted. I mean, by ninety nine percent, right? And this is with the vaccine. You know, only to sixteen years and up. Um, So, you know, the other thing about herd immunity, and this is something that I'm I'm writing an article on right now because I feel so passionately about this, um, is that, you know, it makes no sense for the CDC and the FDA to not consider those with prior infection immune, right? We may already have reached herd immunity. And for the CDC to recommend that whether or not you've had the infection you know no matter how long ago it was you know march 2020 for us even you know no matter when you've had the infection or even if your child actually had MISC they should still get a vaccine is really not good science it doesn't make any any sense and there's a huge cleveland clinic study um, that came out looking at um Unvaccinated people who had prior infection, a history of infection, vaccinated people who had history of prior infection, and vaccinated people with no history of prior infection. And what they looked at, they they followed these, they were healthcare employees at the Cleveland Clinic, and they found that um, there was essentially zero, zero um, difference in new infection rates in people who had prior infection, whether they were vaccinated or not or people with no prior infection who were vaccinated same quote efficacy against you know infection right? So the authors, and that's, I conclude, I'm going to read this to you. Individuals who who have had SARS-CoV-2 infection are unlikely to benefit from COVID-19 vaccination, and vaccines can be safely prioritized to those who have not been infected before. I think that's a really important point. Um, You know, many, many studies now, in fact, one that was just released this past week showing that B and T cell immunity from infection and vaccination have long-lasting immune effects, and very likely are going to be effective against variants. And I would posit, and I think we need to look at this, I would love for someone to do this research, I actually think that natural immunity probably is more effective against variants than, um, than vaccination. Because in theoretically...
1: That, oh, in that Cleveland Clinic study, I was going to mention you, you have this in your article, which we have the link in the show notes to, to your website. I think it was like 53,000 people. So it was, it was yes. quite large.
0: 52,000. Yeah. Very large study. Right. Um, And, you know, when we look at, you know, theoretically why natural infection, prior infection uh, would actually be more protective against variants, um, you know, with with the current vaccines, the current vaccines are only targeting the spike protein. So we're mounting B cell and T cell responses, antibodies to the spike protein you know, the the S1 subunit and the S2 subunit of the spike protein. And those are the antibodies that we measure to see, you know, um, how, quote, effective the the vaccines are. On the other hand, when you get natural infection, you're not just making antibodies against the spike protein. You're you're making antibodies against many, many other epitopes and antigens, you know, something like 1,400 epitopes, um, you know, mounted T cell response in our immune system. And the nucleocapsid antigen, of the the SARS-CoV-2 virus, appears to be preserved. It's an internal antigen, a protein. It appears to be preserved across almost all the variants that have been looked at, as opposed to the spike protein, which mutates relatively quickly, which is why we're kind of, you know, looking at, are these vaccines still going to be effective, uh, you know, for variants? Um, but the nucleocapsid antigen, we make nucleocapsid antibodies, we make T cell responses against this, uh, against the nucleocapsid protein. So it, it makes sense theoretically that prior infection would actually give better protection against whatever variants may come. Now that research still needs to be done, and I'm certainly not recommending that everyone just go out and get COVID, right? Um, but you know. When we look at, uh, you know, the the numbers of people who have had prior infection, children and adults, um, and the number of kids uh, and adults who, if this policy shift happened, wouldn't need the vaccine. We are looking at, and I I actually wrote these numbers down for the article that that I um, am writing. Um, As of July 6, right, we are speaking, Drew and I, on July (laughs) 7th, as of July 6th, there have been in the U.S. 33.7 million cases of COVID, okay? That means now when you remove the 605,000 deaths from there, over 33 million kids and adults in the U.S. have had COVID, right? If the CDC made this, what I would call an evidence-based policy shift and said that, hey, if you've had prior infection, you don't need the vaccine, that means then with those 33 million children and adults not needing the vaccine, we in the US would have 66 million doses of vaccine that we could distribute to other countries in desperate need, right? I mean, from an ethical standpoint, you know, we're in a global pandemic. I I hear people, you know, my family's in my practice, our family, we want to travel. I said on my bucket list, as soon as the world opens up, we're going back to Australia, right? But that's not going to happen if we don't work as a world to end this global pandemic. So I really, I think you know, ethically, we have some responsibility here. Um, you know, a, a, as a, a major you know, world country, who is doing well right now you know, during this pandemic? To step back and think, you know, how do we make sense of our place in the world and our role in helping to reduce this global pandemic.
1: You know, that's a great place to ask with all this data out there and with very prominent figures questioning sort of the priority and focus on why are we so obsessed with kids getting the vaccine right now, especially with all the data that you mentioned out there. What are some of the, if, you know, I'm asking you to step out of your pediatrician science had, and just thinking from a human being standpoint, what do you think are some of the motivations of why there's so much focus on sort of, I would say, maybe even pressuring families and kids and using maybe fear to to really say, this is something that we have to do now. And again, I want to add the caveat that there's plenty of people on the other side that are saying that You're going to destroy your kid's life if you're going to give them a vaccine, which is also what we're saying is, you know, doesn't seem to be evidence to support that either. But where's the push when especially so much of the rest of the world and one thing that affects, you know, if it takes longer for India to recover, if it takes longer for other countries to recover, it's going to make it harder for us to recover in the Mm -hmm. United States as well. Where's some of that push and that fear motivation coming from? If you thought, you know, if you had to think about it, where would it be coming from?
0: Oh my gosh, Drew, that's like, (laughs) such a such a heavy question. And I think that, you know, I think it, bottom line, it, you know, for, it comes from, from the unknown, right? It comes from that fear place where, um, you know, pediatricians, the CDC, the FDA, um, I mean, I'm not going to say there isn't some financial motivation on the part of vaccine manufacturers, but at the same time, you know, I really and truly believe that that you know most policy officials believe that the vaccine is the only way out of this pandemic, and and to be honest, you know, for for adults, I mean, it may be, it may be. We're seeing lower rates of infection, lower rates of hospitalization, lower rates of deaths. I do believe that the vaccines play a role in that. Um, on the other hand, you know, this this you know pushing to um, shaming and blaming, right? On on, on both. Ends of the spectrum, the shaming and blaming that. Oh my gosh, why haven't you gotten it? Or the shaming and blaming of, oh my gosh, you you got it. What did you do to your kid, right? That has to stop. And but I, that is coming from really a lot of this fear of the unknown. On the one hand, this fear that well, maybe kids could get sick, maybe kids could die, maybe kids you know could get long haul. On the other hand, you know maybe kids can get really serious adverse events. Maybe they can get MISC or autoimmune disease from the vaccine. So it's it's so much. Um, so much of it is is really fear-based. And, um, you know, and that's where, you know, at, for me as a mom, you know, when I read certain headlines um, that just make my heart stop, <laughs> right? I mean, I, that is, like I've said, I tell parents, when you read a headline like that, you know, like, um, you know, the headline out of Brazil that children are dying at much higher rates, right? Um, and then I, and, you know, I, my heart sank and I thought, oh my gosh, is this going to happen here? Could this happen to our kids? Right. And then you, like I said, you just acknowledge that fear, you know, because we, we, we want to do the best for our kids, right? We, we want to make sure, I mean, (laughs) you know, I, Honestly, you know, the parents, especially mothers, I mean, every single decision feels like such a huge decision. And I'm not just talking about the vaccine, I'm talking about which preschool to send your kids to, right? (laughs) You're like, every little thing. I mean, I agonize. I probably went to 30 different preschools for Kenzie, right? Just because I'm like, what if I choose the wrong one and I mess her up for life, right? (laughs) I mean, this is like these thoughts that go through. And, you know, but you know, whether or not you expose your kids to COVID-19 or the vaccine, I mean, that's a huge decision. Um, So, you know, this is where I think just kind of understanding some some of the the factors. I, I, as we go through this pandemic, you know, I'm, much less concerned that children really and truly are at risk for serious disease and serious outcomes. It can happen absolutely. But that is where, you know, I'm also really passionate and adamant about the fact that no matter whether you've gotten a vaccine or not, you know, step back and think about how do we how do we really Use our functional medicine knowledge, um, you know, to build up our kids' immune systems. Um, you know, we were talking about really, you know, the sort of in this global pandemic. You know, some of the ethics around, you know, maybe distributing this vaccine. That uh, even the World Health Organization and you know, Monica Gandhi, Vinay Prasad, you know, Peter Doshi. I mean, these are names that you and I have spoken about as as being really, you know, very reasoned voices during this pandemic. And they're very conventional doctors, right? And so. Um, I've been I've been grateful for some of their commentary, but they are very, you know, uh, outspoken about the fact that they do not believe children should be prioritized, you know, for COVID-19 vaccines, not just yet, not just while we're still in this global pandemic. And the World Health Organization, you know, also, you know, does not consider children a high priority for vaccination. So. If that's the case you know, maybe we should step back as parents, as policymakers, as researchers in the United States and say, hey, do we need to slow this down a little bit? Do we need to think about, you know, are there other, um, are there mitigating factors that, that really make it so that we don't have to rush into getting emergency use authorization for children? Can we take the time, you know, to do, you know, further analysis and really, you know, obtain a biologics license approval? For children as opposed to just emergency use authorization, um, you know, as, as more reports of things like myocarditis and pericarditis come out, um, you know, we need to then also look, have more studies looking at which of those kids are more at risk. Like, why did those kids get myocarditis? Why did those kids get pericarditis? And can we then inform pediatricians and parents on which children might be more at risk for these serious adverse events? I have my conjecture. You know, it's, it's partly, you know, that kids mount a higher immune response. But is that just it? Not necessarily, because you can mount a really high immune response and not tip over into MISC or uh, myocarditis, pericarditis. There's something else that has to be going on. One of the things I think that could be going on is that what we need to look at is, did those kids have prior infection, right? Is that what maybe put them at risk? Did they have evidence of having had COVID-19, even asymptomatically or mild, like month before, a year before, and did that then trigger an even higher immune response um, in those children? Um, you know, we know that, you know, in terms of prior infection, you know, in kids and adults, That prior infection from the Israeli study that looked at myocarditis in the young males that were being reported, prior infection did seem to play a role in increasing the risk of developing myocarditis. And prior COVID 19 infection has been increased, has been associated with an increased risk for many different serious, immediate adverse events after both Pfizer and Moderna. Uh, And so, if we know that, should we step back and say, hey, should people with prior infection? First of all, do they need a vaccine? I think probably not. Second of all, should we look at a lower dose for maybe those you know people with the vaccine, or maybe do they only need one dose? Um, maybe do we you know test that people for antibodies and T cells before they get a vaccine, so that we then can get the vaccine to people who are much lower risk for serious adverse events who actually could use the protection. I mean, all of these thoughts kind of go through my head that I feel like, you know, if we're going to take this, uh, look at this from a scientific perspective, an evidence-based perspective, and a non-fear-based perspective, we really need to sit back and ask the right questions, right? Ask the right questions so that we can get to the right answers, so that parents, policymakers, physicians, we all are on the same page. And can make the best evidence based recommendations for for our patients
1: and I, I think part of that goes into this conversation of when some of the data is unfolding for any parent who's listening, you know i'm not a parent um, you know yet, but I hope to be one day for anybody any parent who's listening, then also a little bit of the pressure of immediately making a decision, like putting your foot in the ground and saying yes, or putting your foot in the ground and saying no, especially. It does seem, you know, this is just me looking from the outside, that there is a little bit of a campaign to maybe um, that came out from the CDC initially. I think it was well-meaning. I think it was well-intentioned. It was trying to get parents and um, doctors and individuals who were paying attention to say, look, this is a serious issue. The initial vaccine trial amongst, you know, the kids were showing it's 100% safe. We need to really push this forward and And really help people understand, even the CDC um, was accused at one point in time when they started releasing some of the information of having you know five to seven week old data that they were putting out to the population, as you referenced earlier in terms of how uh, significant the new cases were amongst amongst children and, and you know and kids that were there and i and I think they pulled back a little bit since that time period but what what i've been what I wanted to bring up is that when you are deciding and trying to decide what's the best for your family, if you understand balance in one side, the true risk that kids have or don't have, and then you're looking at a possible intervention that's there, a little bit of the pressure and the fear to make a decision right now is pulled back a little bit. And then you could say, I can wait a little bit more for some information if that's a place that you're in right now where you are wanting some more information that's there. Um yeah i also want to I also want to reference you know one other component you know, for anybody who's listening uh, you know who understands that vaccines have a role, just not covid nineteen vaccine alone, but vaccines have had a role in public health throughout the history of medicine. There's been a lot of vocal individuals, and one of them has been um you know Martin Coldorf, who's been quite a controversial figure during the pandemic because. Early on, he was sort of saying very honest statements. You know, this is a uh, medical doctor, professor at Harvard Medical School, uh, background in infectious disease, uh, you know, all the things, all the accolades that somebody would need. And um, he got a lot of flack early on for saying, like, look, we need to focus on uh, really the elderly and the most vulnerable. And he was one of the authors of The Great Barrington um, decorate, decoration that also, I believe, uh, uh, there's three other, auth- two other authors that were part of that too. Anyways, what he was saying, and he's very much like vaccines have a role inside of medicine. And I, you know, I believe in them. So if we're not careful with how we go about kids and vaccines and looking at the safety signals that are emerging, we could have, we could waste so much goodwill on a whole generation of people by shoving vaccines down the throats of people before we have the data that's there specifically yeah. for kids. And if you are a believer in in vaccines and understand that they have a role in public health in addition to uh, you know other interventions that are there, you understand that this is actually being Taking a more watchful eye and paying attention to things and not allowing our confirmation bias to just shove our opinion down the throats of everybody else is actually a good public health policy decision just in case if something were to come up later on. you know, And then God forbid, a whole bunch of people have lost trust in vaccines that previously would have, would have had that trust in a more tempered environment.
0: Yeah. I mean, I that is is such a good point. I mean, we cannot do more harm um, than the harm we're trying to prevent, right? And, you know, like we said in the beginning of, of our conversation, the, the, the risk-benefit analysis for children is very different than it is for adults and for those who are at risk. Um, you know, we in the States here are in a position of I would say, of luxury, right? Where, you know, we are, you know, our case numbers are down. We feel more comfortable. You know, we you know, things, we're we're seeing signs to party like it's 2019, right? You know, I'm not recommending that by any means, right? It's not 2019 yet. You know, we're not done with this quite yet, Um, but we can see an end in sight, right? And, you know, so does that mean then, you know, Really rushing into this, and I will say, I mean, just going back to the shaming um, and the peer pressure, it's not just for parents, I mean my gosh, I mean teenagers are some of the population that that come in to me, and they want this vaccine so desperately because they see this as their ticket out, their ticket back into you know playing with their friends, going to concerts, you know hanging out, you know not having to wear masks, and you know I just my heart goes out to the teenagers right now and to the parents of teenagers. Um, because I'm seeing seeing and hearing a lot of butting heads, and that's no way to make a decision, right? It's no way to teach your children how to make a decision either. And and sadly, I've had some teenagers who, you know, as soon as they turn eighteen, they're saying, "Well, I'm just going to go and get it anyway," but but you know, I'm not going to tell my parents. And I I just never want that for any family. I want but also that's to their be,
1: that's their right, right? That's, that's their right as it an eighteen year right. old that they can do that
0: absolutely. And in other other states, you know, um, kids can give informed. Their, their informed consent for vaccines is as young as 12. Um, but what, what truly is informed consent, right? We also, as parents, don't want to just necessarily present the data that confirms our confirmation bias to our children, right? You know, presenting the data, this is how we teach our children to make good decisions for themselves with that scientific brain, reading articles critically, you know, trying to look at, you know, evidence from all, you know, the entire spectrum, of opinions. Um, and, and really, you know, teaching them how to make the best decisions for themselves, no matter what that decision is. So I do, I think, you know, we, this is, this is an opportunity. Um, but, you know, for teenagers, it's also not necessarily a, a choice either. Um, you know, some schools, high schools are mandating um, the vaccine, um, to the, uh, or not necessarily mandating it, but in effect, mandating it. Because if you are the only one in your class, who has to sit there with a mask on, or you can't participate in in the school's camping trip, or you can't do whatever it is you know you can't play you,
1: basketball, or you can't, can't play, play basketball. Any sport. Mm-hmm.
0: If you're the if you're the only one, <laughs> I mean, really, are, do you have a choice there, right? I mean, that's that's a lot to ask for a teenager. And so. I think that's
1: what a lot of public health policy officials are, you know, it's they're not shy about saying that that's the environment that they're trying to create. They're trying to make mm-hmm. it so that. It's so the societal shame puts you yes. in place, and I feel for parents in in that in that um, in that position. And I feel for kids that are in that position who might want to wait a little bit more, and and make their decision.
0: Yeah, it's it's tough, and that's where I feel like we we need to. Um, um, policy won't change, you know. Based on, uh, we will not be able to affect policy change. With, um, with just loud voices, right, and, and fear and anger. Um, we, we, we will need to really look at the data from as unbiased and objective, you know, a viewpoint as possible and present the data. Um, you know, I, I, I have been doing that, right? I was saying bef- just before we got offline, I mean, I, I have written letters <laughs> to the CDC and the FDA with the research you know, to really ask them to ask the right questions, right? To look at you know things from a perspective that doesn't isn't just single sidedly um, everyone needs to get the vaccine, especially children. But really looking at what is best for our children. You know, in in this pandemic, as we're trying to open up, we're trying to get society you know back again pre pandemic. You know, what really is going to be the best for our young children and our teenagers and our young adults? Um, you know and that we're going to need more research to show that vaccines are the only answer for
1: that so let me pose out a um, situation that i know a lot of parents are you know uh, going through right now is that um they are facing for you know kids suffered so much with school being closed and now there's so many publications, New York Times, Washington Post, that early on were really sort of advocates of like, we need to shut all schools down. We need to shut Mm -hmm. everything down. Again, best intentions, but what is now kind of seen as an overreaction from a public health policy place, especially knowing what we know about about kids. Um, And a lot of people have pulled back and are now focusing on sort of the damage that's been caused to kids. And especially really the, um, the poorest of the poor or the most, the individuals who really have, you know, no access to internet are, are disenfranchised populations and communities who, um, you know, kids and, and parents really just do not have the means to continue education in any particular way. Right. They have lost a whole, a whole year, unfortunately. So, um, so, you know, those, those, uh, places that said, you know, kids have suffered from a lot of, a lot of harm and kids, ha- kids did suffer from a lot of harm, not socially being able to hang out. And a lot of parents who are looking at that, you know, uh, even parents who have their own questions about maybe vaccine safety and more data and other stuff, emergency use authorization are like, I feel like I just want my kid to get it so that they can go back to what's normal that's out there. And they've already, they've made their decision. You know, at the beginning of the article, in the beginning of this conversation, they had made that decision that when it's available at the time, that's right. They're going to go forward and they're going to get it done because they are weighing again, the pros and cons. And they're like, I do not want my kid to continue suffering mental health wise. And I want them to go. And I understand that this is limited data that's out there for those parents that are in that category who are either made that decision uh, or are making that decision in the moment. And they come to you and they say, okay, Dr. Song, what should I be looking at if I am wanting to mitigate any sort of potential inflammatory risks that might happen after that? What sort of conversation do you have with those parents and their and their children?
0: Mm, you mean if they decide to get the vaccine? Yeah, to, and they're like, is there anything that I need them? to do?
1: And, you know, we've decided, we've decided to make, you know, get the vaccine what, you know, what do we need to be thinking about or, or doing for mm-hmm.
0: kids? Um, and, you know, I've, I've been having this conversation with parents from long before the pandemic, <laughs> you know, because children, you know, the, the childhood vaccines are part of, you know, many pediatric visits. And, um, you know, families come to me, uh, I mean, not for that integrative functional medicine perspective on how do we, um, you know, really look at, first of all, the um, what's best for our kids in terms of what do they really need, right? Uh, and you know how do we mitigate any potential theoretical reactions, um, especially in California where there really aren't any choices for for parents um, if if they want their children in school uh, to be able to let's say space out vaccines or you know selectively do the do the vaccines um, against the diseases for which their children may actually be at risk. So lots of different conversations there. Um, I mean, we could go off on so many tangents on that one. But, you know, right now as it pertains to COVID-19, um, you know, I, I've, I've walked through and I uh, teach parents and kids really how to think about supporting their immune system so they don't have a hyperinflammatory response. So they don't, you know, develop autoimmunity or, or you know, cytokine storm or whatever, you know, reactions from the vaccine. Um, and really, the, the best way to try to mitigate those reactions and reduce those risks is to start ahead of time, <laughs> right? I mean, don't just start, you know, the, the day you get the shot, prepare yourself. And there are a lot of different things we that, I mean, I pulled out the literature, you know, for, um, uh, for this so that parents and, and kids, other practitioners who want the research know there is some evidence actually a lot of evidence on what can make vaccines more, quote, effective and what may mitigate the response, uh, the, the, the overreaction, which is exactly what we want. If you're going to get a vaccine, we want it to be effective, right? We want you to mount antibodies and T cell responses so that you actually get the protection that you're hoping that you get by the same token We don't want all the other stuff that goes along with, you know, an overactive immune response, right? We want to try to mitigate. Um, We can't ever say prevent, but, you know, I think that there are ways to reduce those effects. Um, Diet and lifestyle, 100%. What's the number one immune system killer? It's sugar, right? So leading up to your shots, don't binge on, like, I mean... The whole Krispy Kreme thing, giving out donuts. I mean, what a disaster there, right? I mean, don't load up on sugar right before you're going to get a vaccine. And, um, and for
1: anybody unaware of what you were ch- chatting about, it—I believe it was uh, Krispy Kreme, at least in California, might be nationwide as well too—was handing out free, you know, donuts to people that killed proof <laughs> of vaccination.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, don't it's do that. It's kind just of right? <laughs> so, um, so you want to, you know, just really, you know, cut out the refined sugar, um, you know, leading up to the vaccine. Why? Because we know that sugar um, reduces your white blood cells ability to mount an effective immune response by about 50%. Okay, 50%. And that effect can last for hours and hours, right? So, you know, if you or your kids are like, you know, candy fiends, I mean, just cut it, you know, <laughs> before you get the vaccine. Um, you know, leading up to, there's actually been uh, been some data that, especially for older people, getting five or more servings of fruits and vegetables in a day leading up to the vaccine can actually um, make the vaccine more effective, right? So again, this is not rocket science, right? This is what we preach, diet and lifestyle and functional medicine, but go back to that. Um, even exercise, so regular exercise, exercise. Um, And I'm not saying go run a triathlon and and really destroy your body before, like moderate exercise before and after the vaccine um, has also been shown in adults to improve vaccine efficacy. Great, right? Even sleep, get sleep, right? Optimize sleep. Even there's some studies looking at sleep, especially the the couple of nights leading to the vaccine, maximizing efficacy, right? Um, Also, what's fascinating are some of the studies looking at the mind, right? And depression and anxiety and stress uh, and how those reduce vaccine efficacy, right? And so, you know, when you, <laughs> I mean, sure, there are things that happen that maybe affect our, our, our mood on the day of the vaccine, but trying to go in um, to the vaccine with optimal heart rate variability, you know, meditation, you know, uh, mindfulness. Um, I do all sorts of things to really try to improve my heart rate variability as as a way to improve vagus nerve function, which is going to maximize a healthy balanced immune response, whether you have COVID-19 infection or get the vaccination, some really good, good Research looking at that, um, you know, and I track that on on my aura ring, and you know, I have multiple things that I do, um, but but that you know, if you are going into this decision with fear, you have to let go of that fear, right? Whatever you decide, be confident, calm, confident with it, um, and then I do recommend supplements. I do, absolutely, you know, for my babies that get vaccines, and even for. Um, for, you know, the patients in my practice who, um, you know, receive the vaccines, Um, you know, based on some of the evidence that I've found in the literature and also, you know, based on um, my clinical experience, right? When we talk about evidence-based medicine, we have to remember that evidence-based medicine encompasses the, the science and the art of medicine—not um, just what's available in the literature, but also clinical experience. And you know, I've been practicing, you know, as an integrative pediatrician, a pediatric functional medicine doc for, I mean, over 20 years now. And um, and this is, you know, this is this is—I'm I- 100% confident that this is helpful. And of course, you know, I'm not making recommendations necessarily for you or your family. This is something that um, needs to be individualized. But I know people are like, "What are the supplements?" Right? <laughs> so. You know, methylation support and lots of different functional medicine docs have different ways they support methylation, but things like methyl B12 or methylfolate, mitochondrial support with things like CoQ10, um, antioxidant detoxification support, you know, with things like glutathione. There's, and there's a variety of different ways you can support these, but these are kind of the the categories that I kind of look at, right? Um, And then also, you know, I'd like to really modulate a healthy immune response. And this is, what I believe also is 100% important. If you do get COVID-19 so that you don't tip over into cytokine storm or septis or misc. we have these amazing immune modulators that we know about from a functional medicine standpoint. Um, Remember, anything that can happen after vaccine, uh, anything that can happen after infection could theoretically happen after vaccination. So that immune modulation is really important. Well, what's one of the best ways to modulate your immune system? Engage your vagus nerve, right? I mean there are vagus nerve stimulators that you can use. There are mindfulness, meditation, right? I actually have some I have some apps and things that I use that make it really easy, right? Um, I have this device right here, the the, my Apollo that that is helpful. Um, but as far as supplements go for immune modulation, I mean take your pick. My very, very favorite is specialized pro-resolving mediators. And if you've been following me this whole time, you know how what a fan I am of SPMs, Um, but there's also vitamin D, there's melatonin, you know, there's uh, something called serum-derived bovine immunoglobulin. Um, and, and just, you know, as an aside, by the way, those those are the the things that I gave to Bodhi um, when he was hospitalized that, that I 100% believe when he was having hallucinations and tics, severe abdominal pain, headaches, um, low oxygen levels. When I started those, he turned around and we were literally home in, in a day and a half. I mean, so fast. And he was literally, it was the Saturday before Easter, he was running around the yard that afternoon and, you know, ready for an Easter egg hunt by Sunday. Um, And I 100% believe those those functional medicine approaches um, were so important. And so no matter what, you know, whether it's if you get COVID-19 or if you get the vaccination, I think these are all important things to remember. These are all steps, and I say start it before you get the vaccine, because it's all about building up that reserve, right, building up the reserve in your immune system so that Whatever happens, your immune system has enough cushion to say, "Hey, I can deal with this. I can manage this. I can have normal, healthy inflammation, and then I can bring it back down."
1: And it's almost like that is the foundation for both kids and adults. And then whatever happens into to you in your life, whatever sort of exposures, this pandemic, a future pandemic, any kind of other, you know, contagious uh, situation or or life event, you know, stress, whatever it might be that foundation makes you resilient regardless. You know, sometimes I feel like, unfortunately, you know, vaccines get a little bit more attention than they deserve in terms of the context of, uh, on on a global scale of how important all the foundational items are, how important all the foundational items of diet, lifestyle, other stuff. And we like to think that even people, and even in this context of, you know, children respond to vaccines the same way. And, and they, and they don't, a lot of the, how you respond to any sort of inter- intervention is going to be based on that foundation of core health that you just covered um, here for both, you know, parents and, and kids. And I think that's an important reminder as people go through this, because sometimes we are, get so worried about the topic of vaccines Again, for kids or for adults. And I think that it warrants, you know, it's important to discuss, it, it warrants diving deep into it. It's important for discussions like this discussion to happen. And largely, the human body is very resilient, right? It's very resilient when that base foundation is there, whether somebody went for the vaccine or whether somebody didn't go for the vaccine. And I think that's an important part of the discussion. It's almost taboo to talk about it, but it is part of. Um, you know, the emerging data that we're starting to see from people that are out there that are willing to have that conversation and say, like, actually, it it does matter. It does matter that, you know, we're not obese. It does matter that we reduce our sugar. It does matter that we have exercise and sunlight and and these other factors that are there.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I, I do hope that this is an opportunity um, to uh, shed more light on that, you know, uh, the framework, the foundations of resilience in our bodies um, really, you know, have, uh, bring forward to everyone, right, the importance of a functional medicine framework. Um, and, you know, this is something I think, you know, bottom line, that's, as you said, this is the most important thing that we can do for ourselves and for our families. But I want to remind families, parents, anyone listening, <laughs> that Immune resilience, it doesn't mean never getting sick. That's really important to remember. And there's no shame if you do your best and you still get sick because we still have our genes, right? We still have our epigenetic predispositions. And despite, you know, doing everything we can, sometimes things will not go the way we had planned. Because in the early days of the pandemic, there was also a lot of shaming, you know, if you did get sick. Well, yeah, you we must talked not about that, that. Yeah, you, you must not be, you know, um, you know, practicing what you're preaching. And this is just, you know, even from some of my functional medicine colleagues who got very sick with COVID, and there was such shaming. And it's like, no, that's we need to really be in this together. But understand mm. that this is the foundation, right? We're going to do everything we can to have a beautiful foundation. Um, and then, you know, if something goes not like we planned, we know exactly how to step in. Right, so that we recover quickly. Right, that's. I mean, this is exactly what we spoke about on our first interview. I mean, that immune resilience. So I don't want parents. I want parents to enter into this fall, this winter, you know, this back to school season with more calm and you know more confidence that their children's immune systems are resilient. Um, and that doesn't mean never getting sick. It doesn't mean hiding them away back home in a closet. Because as you said, kids need to go back to school. Right. This kids back to school should not hinge on whether or not they get a vaccine. They should go back to school. Schools need to reopen again, right? Um, but, you know, that, so I want parents to understand if you start building up these foundations now and continue on, you know, as your children enter school or in the, into this fall and winter, they may get sick, but we want them to get sick and be able to bounce back really quickly. And that's what we can do with some of these functional medicine foundations.
1: Oh, such an important point. So as we conclude here and, you know, we wrap up this interview, I think there's a couple of key points. You know, when I walked away from reading your article, you know, even though I don't have kids, I have so many folks asking me for resources that might be there for kids. And when your article came out, it was one of the top ones that I'd been sending them sending to them. In addition to some of the names that you had mentioned earlier and their thoughts about, um, you know, where we stand in terms of emergency use authorization and, and COVID vaccine for kids. But z- zooming out, I think you a know, couple important topics that are there um, that push up against some of the narrative that a lot of people have heard um, is that most likely if somebody did have, this also includes for, for kids, if somebody did have COVID, there's going to be some um, natural immunity that's part of that conversation. It's leaning more in that direction than not. And sort of the official answer that I do want to acknowledge, um, you know, th- that that CDC was sort of sharing was, we don't know, so we're going to err on the side of everybody. It's all or nothing. Mm-hmm. You either, you, you know, you got to get the vaccine, right? But it does seem to be that if you've had it, there is natural immunity that that comes from there, right? And we can provide some more resources that people can dig into it. Absolutely. The, sec- the second one is, yeah, you know, COVID hospitalizations and deaths for kids extremely rare, extremely rare, and um, plenty of resources that are out there that were on that um, that topic. Uh, yes, there was a clinical trial that was there for the vaccination on kids. And as far as it is compared to some of the other clinical trials that they did for vaccines for adults, smaller, right? And more information is still continuing to come out. Who knows? We might do another podcast in three months and the conversation is different, right? But at least right now on July 7th, uh, 2021, um, there is limited data and it's okay to say that. It's okay to say that because that's what emergency use authorization is. It was taking the limited data and saying that we're making it available. And it doesn't mean that, um, it still means that people can weigh that, the pros and cons of that information with their own, um, you know, their own physician and their own doctor and luck. And hopefully you should be so lucky, although there's not that many of them that you can find an open-minded pediatrician, especially if you have, you know, a child, um, at least somebody that's willing to look at some of the da- data that's out there, or like an article like you've put together. Are, are there any other couple big picture topics, you know, big picture points that you would summarize as we are towards the conclusion of this, uh, this interview?
0: You know, I, I think I think we covered a ton. Uh, you know, I mean, we did cover a ton. <laughs> I mean, I think that that really, you know, what 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 I want parents to recognize is that you know things things are changing, as you said, right? And and you're absolutely right. I mean, even you know. Two months from now three months from now once kids are back in school um, we may be having a different conversation but bottom line you know i think that um right now it really for parents uh my goal is to with articles that you're going to be providing the links to not just mine but you know all the different articles um you know look at those and just really know that the vast majority of children. Even your children, even children who have comorbidities um, tend to do just fine, right? That they'll do well. Um, And so if you you are a little hesitant, right, about the vaccine for your child, it's okay to wait, like Drew said. But arm yourselves with the knowledge on how to build up your child's immune system so that you don't have to be afraid, right? You know, we just don't. We want to, you know, when we take action... And we know that the, the things that we're doing are helpful for our kids. That's when we feel empowered, and that's when the fear goes down. So don't live in fear. You know, live live in empowerment uh, and, and move forward with all the tools that we know can help your child. I mean, really, from a body, mind, spirit perspective, right? Really help them be resilient.
1: Well, one one clarifying question that I want to, you know bring up as we were concluding in, which I know that a lot of parents have have asked me if I have any resources in this area, and I told them, just hang on, you know, because I'm not the expert, I'm not the physician, but I interview them and I can ask, you know, Dr. Song, you know, in your article, one of the statements that you had uh, that was really highlighted and bolded, we referenced it earlier, but just want to ask a clarifying question that a lot of people have. So you you wrote that I believe that children, teens, and adults with known prior SARS-CoV-2 infection should not receive their COVID-19 vaccine until further investigation. And that's where we were sharing that. Is it for kids, especially if they had COVID, does it, you know, are some of the kids that were having these, um, you know, inflammatory responses and the heart health issues that were there, was it because those kids that had the vaccine and had those responses had covid prior right that, that's the question yes, right yes. that's what we're waiting for now within that context a lot of parents are like i don't know if my kid mm. had covid or didn't you know they got what i thought might have been a mild flu or they had like got really bad cough in the early days of you know march and 2020 and april 2020 i don't know was it covid or not and Especially because kids, even when they do get COVID, it tends to be overall. It tends to be, you know, mild. Um, Your son, as you mentioned, you know, you took him to the hospital, and there are situations like that. But overall, it tends to be mild. How are you helping parents who are navigating this conversation? You know, figure that out. Are you recommending certain testing that would be there? Um, Is there anything a little bit more um, specific that you would give to parents who are like, actually, I'm not even sure if my kid had COVID or not?
0: yeah and you know this is not just for for parents this is for adults too you know with or without kids i mean many adults are asking the same thing i wonder if that flu-like thing even in like december of 2019 was COVID because now we know that sars-cov-2 is probably around at least in california you know before before january of 2020. Um, so one of the biggest biggest problems right now is also with covid testing you know antibody and t-cell testing those are all also um, just uh, have been released under emergency use authorization, right? I mean, all your rapid tests, your PCR tests, your antibody tests, your T-cell testing, none of them has been FDA approved. So with that, we have to take that with a grain of salt that, you know what, many of them are probably not as accurate as we need them to be to make these personal and policy decisions, okay? Now, that being said, um, i do have patients get tested if they'd like to right if they're if, they're, if this is if their decision point right now is well I, i'm considering the vaccine but i'd like to know if I've, i have prior in fact if i've had prior infection and have immunity because that might tip my decision on whether or not to get the vaccine then yes um with the caveat that you know there's really i, I can't guarantee that any test that's done is going to be as, as sensitive and specific as we'd like it to be. Um, so with antibody testing, you know, most commercial labs are now offering IGG, you know SARS-CoV-2, IGG antibody tests, which would look at antibodies um, from, from past infection. Um, we know that antibodies can last for anywhere in the beginning it was thought oh they're gone in four to six months now we know they probably last at least twelve months and as we keep going on and on further away from the start of the pandemic, we will very likely see that that those antibody responses can be sustained um, there are also interestingly um, once once the acute infection is done, usually, you know, your IgMs go up right after initial infection, and they go down pretty quickly for acute infection. Your IgG antibodies go up, and they can stay elevated. Sometimes we'll see a decline over time. Um, but some of those will kind of... Uh, some, of our, some of our B cells will migrate to our bone marrow and become long-lived plasma cells. And those long-lived plasma cells and other infections are found to secrete these low levels of antibodies for years. Right, which is why now a lot of researchers are saying probably natural infection will provide year, year, years of immunity, maybe even lifelong. Um, there's not any test for those long-lived plasma cells just yet. T-cells, so now there's increasing evidence that even if antibodies wane, you know, uh, and B-cell antibody production wanes, T-cell response can be sustained. And T-cell response, even to um, SARS-CoV-1, you know, 17 years ago, seems to be persisting. And SARS-CoV-2 is very much like SARS-CoV-1, hence the name, right? Um, there's only two labs right now, as we speak, that offer T-cell testing. There's one lab called T-Detect that you can uh, that you have to go to LabCorp to get. This actually doesn't require a physician to order it, um, but is only available for people 18 years and up, so not for children. Um, Another lab that does T-cell testing and what I believe to actually be more accurate antibody testing is IGENEX, I-G-E-N-E-X, okay? Um, These are not inexpensive and insurance may not cover it, which is, you know, really there again comes kind of the ethical questions around, you know, who has access to to this kind of testing, right? And to this kind of um, more personalized decision-making. Um, which you know through this pandemic has been you know one of the most heartbreaking things to really shine such a light on on the you know racial and, and you know inequities that are coming up um, you know even for COVID pediatric COVID you know seventy percent of kids who develop who need hospitalization who die who develop MISC, are you know Black Hispanic or um, Alaska Native American Indian descent. 70% and th- whereas they really they make up only about 40% of all the children in the United States. So just as an as, as an aside we need to again just not, we need to wake up all around <laughs> you know after this during this pandemic after this pandemic. But iGenix uses um, they have a T cell test called IGX spot Um, And also their antibody test uses something called immunoblot technology that looks at recombinant uh, antibodies against four different SARS-CoV-2 antigens. Remember, there are thousands, thousands of antigens and epitopes that our our B cells and T cells make immune responses to. So they use four, um, the S1 spike protein subunit, the S2 spike protein subunit, the nucleocapsid protein, and the receptor binding domain protein. Uh, And so that you get an overall look at because maybe your spike protein is down and most labs only check for spike protein antibodies, but you still have nucleocapsid antibodies or you have receptor binding domain antibodies. So I think, you know, right now, Igenix is is my preference, but you need a physician to order it. Again, it's not inexpensive. Quest and LabCorp, there are some, you know, some labs that are beginning to test other antigens. So they do have available now at Quest nucleocapsid IgG antibodies. So, you know, you could also do Quest or LabCorp, and that also is available to any age, um, but does require your physician to order it for you. So a couple of different options there. T, just as a, a summary, T cell testing only two options. There's T Detect that is only offered for. Uh, available for people 18 and up. And then there's Igenix, which can be at any age. And then antibody testing, you know, there's so many options out there, again, because they were authorized under emergency use. Um, I do question their sensitivity and specificity, um, but Quest, LabCorp may be reasonable. Um Igenix is likely the most accurate, um, but may not be accessible to everybody.
1: That's a great summary. And like a lot of the discussion, a lot of nuances that are there, a lot of navigation. This is all new to us. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, these tests are not always the easiest to either get or they might be a little bit pricey. But just backing up the idea that if you do, again, speaking specifically about, you know, children right now, obviously, if you're an adult, right you should look into natural immunity a little bit more if you know that you had covid because that's a big part of the conversation but especially for kids if you suspect that your child had covid could be another reason to wait for more information on the vaccines as yeah. stuff starts to emerge which it's continuing to to do so so
0: yeah. And I want to, you know, give an example too. I have a family um, of three who, you know, were, are in this very same position. And they did do um, iGenX testing and they all have evidence of prior infection. And this is from, you know, they they got very, very sick in January of 2020. I mean, we're looking, it's a, over a year and a half later and they still have immune uh, responsiveness. now. This is where the policy shift needs to occur. This is where, you know, more physicians and researchers need to really um, speak out and, and, you know, make it clear that the CDC, ha- they've gotten this, this one wrong, <laughs> you know, that, that they need to change their policy guidelines on this. Um, because, unfortunately, no, at the moment, um, no work, no employment uh, that I know and no school that is mandating vaccines are accepting Antibodies, proof of prior infection, or T cell testing results, um, and and you know they are still requiring uh, their employees or um, or students to get the vaccine. So this has to come from a policy level. And I really hope that the science will lead to this this policy change, which I think is very, very important. And then as we get more data, we need to really look at, do we need to change policies around you know, recommendations or or authorizations uh, for pediatric vaccines?
1: it's uh, a great point. And we're in a place right now where a big part of that is these initial conversations, because I do mostly believe that the people that are In charge in different organizations and public health, and they're just human beings. They're trying to make the best decisions that they can. They're trying to navigate in the best way. Sometimes we have a tendency to have our own confirmation biases on things, all of us, so everybody can fall into that trap, including them. But if we can host the conversation, and then you never know who's listening, and then one person starts hosting it, then another person. You saw this with at least the dialogue. You know, in in the early days of the pandemic, you were banned on Facebook if you referenced any kind of questioning around the lab leak theory and questions around game of function mm-hmm. research, right? And since that period of time, as most people know who are watching this, that has been completely opened up to being a very potential and real possibility, at least one that's deserving of questions. Mm-hmm. And who knows if this video will be allowed to, you know be on YouTube and other stuff that, you know, there's been some questions about discussions around kids and vaccinations and allowing those conversations to happen. But without these conversations, we can't at least be open to the possibility that there are some things that we have not hit the nail on the head with, and we have to look at it from a different standpoint. So Dr. Song, I so appreciate you being the host of these conversations with your writing and being willing to come on this podcast and other shows that are out there. And um, I just want to acknowledge you for that because I'm sure you've gotten it from both sides, especially, you know, you can <laughs> you conclude your article and you say uh, something, you said, as I've said many times before, I'm not 100% pro-vaccine. I'm not 100% anti-vaccine. I'm 100% pro-child. And that should be the case with everything, right? We don't want to put, you know, we don't want to attach ourselves to any intervention. You know, we want to attach yourself to the outcome of healthy people, healthy families, healthy adults, healthy kids. And uh, it takes a little bit of courage to put yourself out there in a time where people are even afraid to approach the conversation because they're worried. What are other people going to think? Or are they going to get deplatformed? So I appreciate you being willing to put yourself out there.
0: Thank you, Drew. I I so appreciate you providing this platform to be able to get more information out and, um, you know, your work that you're doing to really bring functional medicine to the public. It's so needed. And this is just, this is, this is the time, you know, for all, for all of us to work together um, to really create a new movement of health, because we are, (laughs) we're, we're not, we're not going very far the way we're going and uh, and and I so appreciate you um, asking the questions because good science starts with asking the right questions and you know we should never be um, uh, we should never be censored for asking the questions right we we need to look for the right answers
1: ah it's well said your website is healthykidshappykids.com you can find the link to your article should children get the covid-19 vaccine. And that has a ton of references inside of there. Um, any other place that you'd like to send the audience if they want to keep in touch with you and stay uh, abreast of all the cool things that you have coming up, including, I think a book coming out in like a, a year and a half, two years, which yes. we'll have you back on the podcast. 2023. To talk about. So <laughs> 2023 we're not going to talk about what it is, but just know <laughs> that it's coming out. Where else would you like to uh, send the audience if they want to keep in touch with you?
0: So, um, the best place is to also follow just some of the, some of the, you know research and and um, information that i share not just on covid because there's so many other kid things right um, is my instagram account which is healthy kids underscore uh, happy kids or facebook whichever you do facebook is um, also you can just search healthy kids happy kids um, and so those are the two best places and uh, also if you want to keep abreast of all of my articles and any classes that i offer you can just sign up for my newsletter at HealthyKidsHappyKids.com, and that's the best way to find all of the information that i have
1: Dr. Song, thank you for being here.